friends, welcome to the fourth episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast produced by the Silicon Craftsman Guild at NIR. My name is AVB and I am really excited to have Ryan Finlay with us today. Welcome, Ryan. Hey, thanks for having me. No worries. Now, we've met on the interwebs. You're one of those people that I keep coming across in the NIR ecosystem and I was really interested to have you on board because... And I think there's like a single thread or, or a line of work that I can pin down to you. Like I've seen you doing some things more squarely with Nier, some things, your own projects. You're very embedded with the community. All your kids seem to be having their own projects and initiatives. So I thought that this would be a really good conversation to jump in with really knowing where it could go, but we could probably unpack in many different directions. So I guess that a good place to start would be from your vantage point who is Ryan Finlay? Like, where does the story start? Or, or maybe what are you doing now? And we can reverse engineer from there. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a father. I have six kids and I'm living here in Oregon. We were living out in Hawaii a few years ago and my dad was going through Alzheimer's. So we, we moved back here to Oregon to help take care of him. We've rooted down here. The kids are, some of the kids are starting to get older, especially the boys. We've made Oregon our home. A little bit about my history. I kind of got into tech. I've always I've been into tech pretty early. I was born in in '81, so grew up using computers in school, in elementary school and junior high. And yeah, I kind of got a front row seat to the basically the the technology boom that happened in in the early '90s. And it's and just always been fascinated with it. And I actually don't have a I'm not a programmer. I don't have a developer background. But my son Moses, my oldest son, really got into programming when he was about eight years old. So a few years ago, we started working together to to build our own publishing platform. And yeah, so it's been that's been really cool. That's that's one of our biggest projects that we've been working on the last couple of years. I have a little bit of a media background. That's a long story, but I started some media sites, one out in Hawaii called Hawaii Tracker, and literally just started the group to to help the local community out there. They were going through a disaster. There was an eruption going on, and it was moving towards the community we're living or we were about to move to. And I was trying to find a way to help the community before we moved out there and just recognized that they lived in a news desert. And there was just small enough of a town. They didn't have a newspaper. And, and I just recognized that staying up to date, staying current on all the, the latest information with the eruption was going to be a significant thing. So I, I created a, a local news and information site called Hawaii Tracker. And um, yeah, it really took off and exploded back in 2018 after the, we had a big eruption out there. So that group is almost 70,000 people now. I have some great people working with me on that are doing on uh, that are doing a lot of the work and running that. And uh, that's so. awesome. No, that is a really good overview. I don't know if you could see, but I was like frantically taking notes on a few different <laughs> yeah. directions that I want to go down. And I like that. I should have probably said this at the beginning. I'm still getting used to the hang of it. But the, the podcast is about people, product, and crypto, like in that hmm. order. Yeah. So I really like that you start with saying father, six kids, and highlighting the human aspect of things, because that's where we want to, you know, tease out. A lot of the themes have been around understanding your people's journey, what shapes a worldview, what is your vision for the future, because most of us are sort of in between stages, you're working on something, but it's growing or evolving into something else, or it's very hard to get a good understanding of you know what people are doing or, or who they are at the surface, certainly on Twitter. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so that was a really good overview. I like that as well. You bring in the Hawaii connection because I think Mike Purvis mentioned that each other from the Hawaii days. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of great talent coming out of Hawaii. Love it. <laughs> How would you describe the, I guess, like the, the tech or the innovation um, ecosystem there? Is it growing as well? Or do you think that most people come over to the West Coast or, or somewhere else? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it is growing. And I, yeah, I think probably over the last five years, a lot of the tech talent, I know some has stayed there. I know, I think there's an incubator, like a tech incubator over on Oahu, I want to say blue startups or something like that. But yeah, just traditionally, a lot of the startups have been located on the West Coast, Seattle, a lot down in San Francisco and the Bay Area and in Los Angeles and Portland. But now, just in the last couple of years, everything's changed and startups can be anywhere and teams are remote and a lot of companies are going remote first. So I, th- I think that's going to start changing. And I actually, I was hearing a lot of people moving back out to Hawaii at the beginning of the pandemic because their companies went remote. And when it came down to it, when you can work from anywhere, Hawaii is a pretty great place to work. You know, Hawaii is an excellent destination during a pandemic. Yeah. Now, I love that you mentioned the the tech boom in the 1980s, 1990s, and I guess that along the way, because I really like identifying those stages of growth, both historically, where were you placed, what enabled you to get involved, and try to use those insights to understand the new stages of growth that we're experiencing. And I think that in crypto in particular, there's a very early stage feeling we're going to see an, an explosion of things going forward. But also, I think that it's no longer geographically restricted. So this feels like it is truly a global movement or anyone in the world can get involved. I'm not sure if you've read the book, Malcolm Gladwell. I think it's called The Tipping Point. No, his other book. One of his books, he talks about all the you know tech executive billionaires that were born in 1954 and most of them like bill gates and steve jobs and whatnot and then he tracks down well what what were the circumstances and bill gates went to this really prestigious school yeah so his school had these mainframes or some sort of computing system that was more advanced than the local universities and he somehow find a way to hack his way into the computing room so i think students only had a certain level of allowance but he hacked his way in and he just would stay coding all night. So I think that he got to the point that when he got to Harvard, he just dropped out. He knew more at that stage than people at university. And I think that Steve Jobs is a similar story. He was neighbor to like Hewlett Packard or one of the, mm. I think it would have been one of the two. And same, he'd just go to their garage and just start tinkering with technology. So it was really interesting to see the overlap between the generational shift but also being positioned to take advantage. And I always reflect on that because my dad was born in 1954. Hmm. He studied in Canada and he was really good at computing and mainframe. It was one of his favorite subjects. He became an electronic engineer and went back to Venezuela and he did well, but you can definitely see that Venezuela was not the place to be if you were in the tech space. In the subsequent years, oil, great. <laughs> tech was not really our forte then and it may be growing now, but you can still see uh, differences. So I guess it was a long-winded way to ask about your perception of stages of growth and feel free to weave in what you perceive even through the lenses of your kids. Moses is obviously a genius. 
<laughs> and he seems yeah. like he's you know well in his way to be you know very active in in that tech space yeah you're representing many hats here yeah yeah i'll give it my best shot i remember i want to say it was 98 99 2000 2001 that period or maybe early 2000s also there was an i was in southern oregon so not a tech community at all but just being watching it very attentively there was an electric buzz back then like you knew something very significant was taking place it was Things were changing rapidly. The internet was starting to develop and like the possibilities of what it was all going to become were starting to get a, a little bit clearer. Obviously, it was it was still super early, but yeah, you knew it was going to be huge. And, and yeah, it- I'm just wondering what would have been those like inflection points? Is it computers making their way into most people's homes? And you start to see how, well, there's not much that I can do on this now, but everything is developing so fast that you can see where it's going. I don't know. I wonder what it is. And even I wonder if we have any parallel today, maybe with electric vehicles or or renewable energy in general or or space exploration, because there's a bit of energy around certain industries. I would for sure say, the. I remember I spent a bunch of my college money on my own computer. I want to say 96, something like that. I bought a, a power PC, like a, an Apple power PC back then, which is, it was really expensive. Um, <laughs> but I remember that a lot of people didn't like, uh, they just thought it was a, like a toy and they, they didn't understand the implications of it all. And, and over the next several years, it became very apparent that everyone needed to have a computer. It started becoming you started using them a lot more in school. And then all of a sudden when people realized that you could start researching and you could start getting information on the internet and it made your life a lot easier, it was just turned into a horse race. And then all of a sudden, once you, once everyone started realizing that everyone was getting computers at home. Yeah. That's like, yeah, that opened up everything. Like, I think we're extremely lucky because because of my dad's background. I think we were probably in the earlier stages of getting like a desktop. And I never really got into programming at an early age, which in hindsight would have been extremely beneficial. <laughs> yeah, uh, I didn't even really get into gaming much. You know, I did play some games, maybe um, you know, ten to fifteen or something, but yeah, nothing like the gaming culture that we see today. But what I find really interesting is that. In the way that you describe the situation, some people saw it and some people were early adopters and some people spent the money to be there early and some people just didn't see it. But eventually they shifted their position. It maps really well of the technology adoption cycle. So you've got the innovators, the early adopters, the early majority, and off it goes. And I find it fascinating that it's easy to lose track of time. Like I remember, you know, when I came to Australia, I also bought my first MacBook as a, a laptop. This is in 2009, 2010. And it was mm. the, the one that was all white, plastic white. Mm. And it was the same back then. People thought that it was like a luxury item or like a toy. No one really saw the use for it. And I remember towards my last years at university, 2015, 2016, it was a joke. You'd see around the lecture theater, every single person had a Mac. In fact, I think I took photos and I showed them on Instagram of I tried to find the PC user, the Windows user. <laughs> there may have been like one in the corner. Mm-hmm. So th- the shift was super dramatic. Even when the iPhone came out, I didn't get one for a while. 
And when I did, and I guess that back in the day we were struggling to pay university fees, my family and some friends were like, do you really need an iPhone? It's like a gadget. It, it, it's a luxury. It's something more than what we need or we expect. So yeah, I just find it fascinating because once again, if you're able to identify those trends early, you can position yourself really well for that exponential growth. And I dare say that we're in that stage in crypto now. A lot of my friends ask me, like, oh, is it too late to wait? I was like, how many people do you know right now that own cryptocurrency? Probably not many. So there's been a growth in the industry, but the industry is still tiny, if you, know, you may even say non-existent. So I think that I obviously uh, chose to double down in that industry and grow within it. But you can probably find many examples of early development. I'm wondering how you see that. Yeah, it's. I'll try to tie the the buzz that I the buzz that I felt back then. I'll give you one example. I remember being in our our media center at our my junior high, and this is ninety. Uh, what was it? Ninety. Let's see. I graduated in ninety nine. I want to say it was ninety five, maybe. And I was talking to the librarian and he was showing me Amazon's website. And he's just, there's this amazing website. And it was all the librarians that used Amazon when it first came out. And he's just like, you can get any book. And it was just, but, but you could tell he was like super excited. He's just like anything. And he would show me, and it was like the, <laughs> it was the worst website ever. But there was little things like that. You're like, holy smokes, like any book. And it's like the, the, the internet enables, like you, so you start, you start getting your mind around what, what the implications could be on shopping. And you're just like, wow. And like, well, what if, what if that happened in other industries? And then your mind just like pops. And uh, then that was just one, that's one little tiny vertical. And I feel very much similar around crypto uh, right now that I did all the way back then. It, the, the transformation is going to be, I feel like just as significant and we're, and, and even you were talking about the adoption cycle, it's still so early back then people were still making fun of people at that. Like people were using Amazon at a time where people were still being made fun of for using computers and people are getting made fun of for owning cryptocurrency or talking about blockchains. It's still so early. So what's interesting um, is that there's all these, I guess we could call them memes now, but there's all these like perceptions and commentary that they are formed with absolutely no basis at all, like no actual experience using the product. And then people spread them out so widely that then they're accepted as truths. Like I remember back in the day, once again, I was, I was fairly young, but I remember people being like, oh, you must be crazy to put your credit card on the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Why would anyone do that? Just don't do it. You're going to get scammed. And to be fair, there were a lot of scams back in the day. I think I fell for one. But that has definitely changed. I actually see people doing the opposite now. I'll be like, I just can't imagine buying a product without like Apple Pay. Like my payment yeah. details are saved in the device and I use my fingerprint or my, my eyes, whatever thing it uses. And yeah, it is interesting. I think it, it helped being, I was a little bit, con, I was contrarian back then. And I was also young. I, I bought my first car off of the internet in 99. I think eBay had just allowed some people to put cars on the site. And I think it was maybe the very first iteration of eBay Motors. Wow. <laughs> and some lady was selling a car up in Portland. What car was it? It was a little Mazda Miata. 
Nice. <laughs> it was a little sports car. But anyways, the, the funny the funny thing about it was I didn't want to pay that. It was going to be a pretty big fee, basically eBay fee for it. So I actually I figured out how to contact her around eBay and, <laughs> and purchased it outside eBay. So I could save on the fee. But. Yeah, I think that all those early day stories that what really inspired me not just to get into tech because my background is actually um, in law and liberal arts but also to i guess that i've always been inherently contrarian growing up in venezuela really shapes you in such a way where you don't really trust anyone and you really question how to improve things because everything is a little bit broken but those early day stories were really illuminating because when you come to the west i've been in australia for 10 plus years I think that a lot of people get used to the way that things are because things work. And we even have like very protective governments. Everything is sheltered. And the downside of things being safe and then working is that people stop thinking, you know, critically, is this the best it could be? Or is there something that is suboptimal? Or is this the best use of my time and my skills? So I really like to see those origin stories of these now big tech companies because I think that most people need to understand that the origin story of anything worth doing is a disaster. (laughs) And you do hack your way. There are some amazing stories. Even Steve Jobs when he went off to college. This is a great story. I think Wozniak told him he found out there was a way to hack the long distance telephone system back in the day. And this is something that it's crazy to me that it needs an explanation, but but it does. Back in the day, if you wanted to call interstate, you paid an extra fee, even within the same country. So I think uh, Steve was going off to California and I don't know what the other one was. So they got this book from the library which enabled you to replicate the exact uh, sound uh, vibration so that when you called the operator, the sound vibration would let you through. Clearly, I don't understand the technology back in the day, but they were able to do it and they hacked into the phone system and they just they just started calling random people off the phone book interstate and they were like, we're in California. And they were like, but well, the best part of the story is that they tried to monetize this invention that they had. And clearly, when you try to sell something to criminals, they got robbed. (laughs) They got robbed at knife point. And it gets better. The the thief contacted them later saying, hey, by the way, I can't figure out how to use it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm willing to pay you now to teach me how to use it. So it was... You may say a masterclass in choosing your customer segments and even your business (laughs) model. Are you going to charge for the hardware or are you going to charge for the the service of teaching people how to use it? There's so many stories like that. Even the eBay one and PayPal. PayPal had some ingenious like guerrilla style marketing where they would host, I think like charity auctions and then email people like unrelated to eBay, asking them to pay with PayPal. They got to the point oh, where yeah, PayPal yeah. wanted to ban them from the platform. And they sold to, I think it was $2.5 billion because they saw the existential threat that eBay was eventually going to get rid of them. But they were trying to catch up, creating their own payment platforms and stuff. I think that those are two fun examples, I guess, now. It's always fun in hindsight. Maybe some more recent examples that may still look a little bit messy, maybe something like an Uber kind of thing. But I do think that people's perceptions definitely change over time. And there are some things that you just, you know, have to do. And 
I think there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in crypto now. <laughs> it's so early that, yeah, it's hard to get your mind wrapped, wrapped around all the changes that are going on right now. Yeah, I would definitely, It's and it's very humbling, right? I've spent a lot of time just trying to like, yeah, it's even with a lot of effort, it's hard to grasp what's taking place. <laughs> and I think the average consumer isn't willing to put in that much effort. So if you think about it in that in those terms, you really get an idea of we're really early right now. And it's, it is, it's, a, it's an exciting, it's an exciting time because it won't always be like this. The things are going to get cleaned up. Yeah. The other little opportunity is like we had a really nice ecosystem hangout yesterday, similar mm. to the one that you were able to join last week. And I think because of the time zone, most likely I was able to connect with a new developer. He's being onboarded to near, he's up in Cairns in Australia very north of Queensland. It's, it's tropical okay. up there. It's really nice, actually. I've never been, but I've seen the photos. <laughs> cool. And I was, so he was sharing his journey on transitioning from being a front-end developer to being a Solidity developer to now going to near. And I asked him if he could document his journey and especially share what are the similarities and differences between a Solidity, which is based off JavaScript, and assembly script, which is one of the smart contracting languages that near also based of JavaScript. And he was giving all the price and he was saying, yeah, look, it's a bit of a steep learning curve because you have to change the way you think. But once you get it, it is way better. So as I'm pushing for him to document this and share it with more developers, either to help them in their journey or to convince them to get started, he was saying, oh, like the documentation on the website is already really good. And I was like, yeah, but guess what? <laughs> Not many people read the documentation on the website or the stage of the journey when you go to the documentation on the website, maybe more advanced. There's always a huge market for taking what already exists and packaging it in a different way or targeting it at a different audience or even just explaining it in a different way. I think that it is so early that even if you're not you know, a, a developer, which are in very high demand, there are opportunities in every field. I'm seeing it now from the community side of things and all the, when I say early community guys, they got involved two months ago and yeah. they've all been able to go up the ranks and self-select into their areas of interest. Now I'm running this guild, product and user experience. There's people getting involved with open forest management for, for, for carbon and, and climate change. There's people going into you name it, all, yeah. all sorts of opportunities. So definitely a good time to get involved. And I think that this is a nice segue to get some of your thoughts into the wonderful world of product. So I know that you've got several projects going on. There's Tracker, Join Tracker. Yeah. I think I saw that website on your Twitter. Yeah. yeah. Shout out to Join Tracker. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to know what your experience with product has been more broadly. Clearly, you saw a problem in a community, and then you started deconstructing it into pieces and applying technology to solve some of those. So I'd love to know, yeah, what your journey has been, even yeah. if there's been like any formal product training or, or engagement with product people, any challenges you've had. Yeah. Anything. Yeah, not a, not a lot of formal training. I'll give you a little bit of the backstory. We should, when we were building those first like Hawaii Tracker, Hawaii Tracker was the first group. And one of our biggest problems, a lot of online communities was we had no way to monetize all of our work and all the effort. And in the middle of the eruption, we were, me and, and a couple of my of the guys on my team, Dane and Phil and 
Sarah, we were working some days, 16 hours a day, like just helping out the community. And a lot of it was just writing up posts and updates on, on the lava and things like that. And we'd been building it inside of Facebook and there's no way to, to monetize our, our work. And I remember actually going down to Facebook. I got invited down to a community summit and they were asking for feedback. Like, hey, what, what should we be working on and how can we help? And I was like, make it easier for us to make money. Like, these are full, like it's a full-time job. As soon as your group gets to 10, 15, 20,000 people, and we were over 50,000 at the time, it's a full-time job if you want to do it well. If you don't want to do it well and you just want to let the group go wild, then sure. You can just do it passively as a hobby. Awesome people. And I have a lot of, I have a bunch of good friends that work at Facebook. Just coming away from it, that, that, that wasn't a priority. And just speculating out loud, I don't know if they have any competition yet. And I think competition ultimately drives their priorities as far as where they're going to help creators and online community builders help them monetize. So it's still not really happening right now. So yeah, we basically, that's when I talked to Moses is about two and a half years ago. And we basically said, if we're going to keep doing this, we're going to need to build our own solution. Like we're going to need a platform to help us monetize this type of work, which is basically online community building and publishing. And yeah, it was, <laughs> if I would have known how much at work it was going to be, and if, if Moses would have known how much at work it was going to be, we probably wouldn't have started. And so I, I, one one lesson is it's good to be a little bit uh, ignorant of the task at hand because we just plunged right into it and like, how hard could it be? We'll just, yeah. <laughs> we'll just build the best them. secrets of entrepreneurship. How <laughs> insane it can get oh, to tell people that before they get started. Yeah. A wonderful world. Come join us. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's extremely hard and challenging and yeah, it, it helps to not know how difficult it's going to be. So yeah. But, um, that was the, f the first time I grasped with that out of proportion level of difficulty and dedication, which you can't even map it with a nine to five commitment, stability and time boxed activities was when I was starting to analyze like, how can there be an entire industry of people that are very willing and very eager to hand out checks to a lot of people? Like they know statistically most of those are going to fail. And I realized that it is actually way easier to disperse money and get a little army of people working teeth and nail to make the project succeed than to have all your risk on the one project. And it's interesting. Overall, I think the ecosystem works out. Personally, the projects that I've started, I'm really passionate about. And I was going to do it regardless. So being funded is always a plus. <laughs> And obviously, you know, investors, a lot of them come from operations themselves or it, it's a system that works out, but it definitely highlights the effort and risk asymmetry in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be, you almost have to be a little bit crazy to do it because there's, because there's, you'll go through a lot of times where you're just, what in the world am I doing? I think one of the hardest things is you, you can be working on problems for months and you, you're making progress, but you're not actually experiencing a lot of the fruit of it yet. Cause it, there's, it's this thing that like eventually you hit product market fit, hopefully. And, but before then working away and then you look out in the world and you, and you see how other people are making money <laughs> and you're just like, holy smokes, like, why did I choose this path? It's it's 50 times harder and it's 50 times less money because you're just yeah, basically working is... for beans. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm sure it exists in the US, but I wouldn't be able to give you a specific example. But we have a bunch of industries in Australia that are like required by regulation. Everything from the smoke, fire alarms to there's entire industries that have been popped up because you must have them. And yeah. People make insane money in them because you must have them. And I hear of some of my friends, most of them are lawyers, consulting, the amount of money they make doing things that, in my opinion, add absolutely no value to society. I guess it is reassuring to know that there are pathways in life when you can show up, not do much, and get paid every fortnight. <laughs> if everything collapses, I'm not going to talk too poorly about them because I'll be heading that way. But I do think that as an entrepreneur, I don't know why, look, maybe I like inflicting pain on myself, but I've always seen remuneration as proportional to my input and the problems that I'm solving or the value that I'm creating. And there have been times, you know, sometimes when I do freelancing work and stuff, when I actually get paid. (laughs) And sometimes (laughs) it feels weird. I was like, oh, well, that's actually a lot of money for not that much work because it was not my project. Like I didn't sweat it out. So... I think I need therapy, but what I like is it because I'm in the product space and part of the focus of the podcast is around product. I think you may have helped me realize that I may be placing too much focus or giving too much credit to that product thinking in ways that it may be misplaced because I think that your journey highlights that you don't need formal product training. Product training is a byproduct. We've created processes to capture something that already existed. How were people solving problems beforehand? So I think that this would be a really good way to start teasing out some first principles. If you are a functional adult and you come across a problem, what would be the first principles or or how would you even define first principles? What are the things that you believe in or how you conduct yourself that enable you to break things down in a way that allow you to build a business even without any training could you clarify the question i was just trying to highlight the difference between textbook smart and street smart so there's a lot of people that may go through like a formal training and you get a checklist okay identify problem observe (laughs) reframe and these are really useful frameworks but that the frameworks themselves were distilled from real life experience. Who knows how many generations of people solving problems. So we've created like shortcuts or like processes that are easy to replicate, but all those things capture real life skills, you know, how to survive in the wild kind of processes. I'd be interested (laughs) to try to explore those kind of like first principles because I think it goes back to, we often make the mistake of thinking we're all on the same wavelength, but everyone has a very different you know, perception of things. Some people question authority. Some people are very compliant. Some people have very small communities. Some people feel part of a global cultural movement that it's unrelated to them. There's many different possible combinations. So I'm just wondering if there's anything either that you're currently conscious of or that has you know, influenced you throughout that has enabled you to respond uh, proactively whenever you face a problem? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't know. I, I can't remember where I first heard it. The saying goes that nobody knows what they're doing. That <laughs> that stuck deeply with me. And you realize that everyone's figuring things out as they go. And I, growing up and looking out and you're like, oh man, these people have to, 
they've been trained how to do everything. And they have this false view of the world where you look at professionals and and you just think, oh, they just know how to do everything. And it's, they're constantly problem solving. They're constantly learning. Most of the time they don't, like they start jobs and they, and they learn how to do it on the, on the spot. That's, that was a big one. The principle That's of not. first principle number one. Yeah. Yeah. Things are stagnant or or fixed. Everything evolves and we don't know anything. So we just keep hopefully improving. And if you're not careful, things will get worse. It's good. Yeah. Just the whole credentialing system. I just didn't believe that you need the credentials to do most things. And I think when you get over that and you realize that you don't, we don't need to ask permission to solve people's problems. That's a big one. I think a lot of cultures and a lot of systems around the world say, no, you need this credential or you need our permission to solve this problem. It's not true. (laughs) You can, if you see a problem in the world and you want to solve it, you can just solve it without anybody's permission. And that applies to almost, that applies to a lot more industries than a lot of people think. And obviously there's certain things like medicine where there's a lot of, a lot of regulations around things like that. But for a lot of the world, um, yeah, it, it's very freeing because you're like, I see a problem and I want to solve it. And so you just go after it. I think that was another big one. I love it because I think for every first principle, or let's just call them guiding principles or beliefs, yeah. you can immediately find a matching problem or like, you know, it is in response to. So for instance, with the accreditation system, two things came to mind immediately when I was in university. I became really good friends with one of the tutors. I don't even remember what uni it was, but we became good friends. He was an excellent academic. And he shared with me that he called the student plagiarizing he knew a student from class and he read the essay and he's like, that kid did not write that essay. So he spent almost a week trying to find who he plagiarized. And in the end, he found the source. The original essay was written in Romanian or some uh-huh. European language, small European language. And he took it and translated it and plagiarized He takes it up to the dean. It was an international student, big business in Australia. Uh, It's the largest export in my state in Victoria. And the dean was like, look, slap in the wrist. He plagiarized a little bit, but no big deal. And he's like, look, this is a big deal to me. There's academic integrity and it just, there's a series of issues that you can unpack. I don't think that needs much explanation. And then I can't remember exactly what the dean told him or he told me. But it is certainly widespread within the university that you go to college or university to get an accreditation, not an education. And that really stuck with me because I was about halfway through my degree. I was paying insanely high fees. And quite often I was wondering, like, what have I learned? The things that I've learned are because I took interest in the unit and I went on a tangent and I picked up the things that I needed or thought could be useful. Two thirds of it I disregarded. And I looked around me. It was great for meeting people and for growing up as a person and giving me some time to figure out what to do with my life. But I don't think it is fair to say that many people got educated there. Yeah, it's a complicated issue. And I like that it's obviously not always the case, but when you accept that as a principle, it puts you in control. You go into proactive mode of, okay, if I stop paying attention 
to accreditations as a fake metric. And most importantly, if I stop, if I eliminate the barrier of the cost of an accreditation, because they keep getting more and more expensive, what can I do nowadays to get an education? What would an education look like in the field that I want to go into? And we are living in a truly special era that everything is available online, either for free, at least you get you started and run your way, or at much more reasonable costs. So I, I really do love that principle. I think Elon Musk has the same worldview. His case must be more extreme because for him, the options would have been what? Go work for NASA, which probably would not have hired him, or yeah. start his own company. And against all odds, he's, he's still going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And look, yeah. I, I get what people say. We are not all Musk. I'm happy to admit that I'm not Musk, but it is important to have that core belief in society because a handful of Musks out there, we don't want to hold them back. We all benefit yeah. from these people that you break past barriers. And I think to some extent, some of the near core team, even Vitalik, they are in that group of people. As some people say on the Twitter sphere, galactic brains, they're really pushing the boundaries of what technology can do. We should not limit them. We can all benefit from this technology and build on top. Yeah, and there's not very many people in the world that I think what they I think Elon was asked, what was it like? I'm gonna butcher the quote, but it was basically he was talking about what it was like to start Tesla or, or SpaceX. I can't remember which one, but it was like chewing glass and staring into the abyss. Yeah, I've been worried about Elon at times because of what he was going through and all the I mean, he took on the electric car industry. He took on the car industry. <laughs> head on when they tried to destroy him literally destroy him and he's just being made fun of and the press was merciless to him and, and look what he did he's transformed the car industry in the whole world it'll go down as one of the greatest entrepreneurial feats in history and oh for sure i may be reading too much into it maybe projecting some personal issues but i do find it really interesting that if you look at those heavy heating generational changing figures Steve Jobs was adopted. Bezos was mm. adopted as well, I think. He, his dad escaped Cuba. He escaped Cuba back okay. in the day. And Bezos was open mm. freely about the very strong values for freedom and enterprise and free markets that yeah. his dad instilled on him. And even Elon, like, he grows up in South Africa. I think he, towards the end of his high school, he had this experience where he was bashed, like, to the point where he was hospitalized for days or weeks wow. so i think that him going to the u.s a bit bold of me to speak for elon but i see it in every migrant it is i escaped horrible conditions where i was very limited where i legitimately questioned what my future was going to be maybe the type of work that i do was not going to be valued or successful whatever it may be and when he lands in the united states he's no one's going to stop me you can yeah. try but if all you can do is tweet <laughs> or be mean to me, I've had worse. So I really admire his vision. I've always been puzzled and fascinated that he's choosing to colonize Mars instead of trying to help South Africa where he grew up, if he still has ties there. I guess it goes back to those you know, guiding principles. And part of the podcast is to understand what have people's journey has been like to shape those. Even moving interstate from Hawaii to Oregon, having a family, I read a hilarious tweet today that <laughs> VCs with no kids 
telling founders with kids, oh, I know what it's like. I'm an uncle and sometimes it can be rough. (laughs) You (laughs) have no idea. You really have no idea. And it's something that I'm mindful of, especially with some of the people in this space that I collaborate quite a lot, like Claudio in Mexico. He's got two young kids. And I don't know how he does it because I find it hard to manage my time and it's just me. (laughs) I can't imagine once you have a larger cohort of very active young humans. It's yeah it's another company like so i i have i feel like i have three companies i have the media so i got hawaii tracker roseburg tracker so i got the two media entities that we've built up and then we have the software company that we're building and then i have my family and it's that's three companies so it's it's <laughs> not that i'm projecting myself as jack dorsey running square and and twitter but it is like you have a big family you have a, that's like a whole other company because it takes, it's all the time, the investment, like the nurturing, you got to, yeah. And you know what? The And it's the most important company because, yeah. It's the one that you can't write off in tax. <laughs> you can't, the, the mistakes are infinitely more costly. Like you gotta, you, yeah. You can't let, you can't let your family suffer. And yeah, and this, I could use this as a little segue. I built, I'm, I'm building a software company with my son. And Moses? I, yeah. So, so nice. Moses, yeah. So he's literally hand, I mean, he's coded the entire thing. Like he's built, he's done all the programming. Got to be careful. Some people are going to come out saying you have slave labor, child labor. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No, but yeah. Yeah. He's, he owns half the company. So it's his company. It's nice growing slowly and organically as we are right now, just because we're a little bit, we're under the radar, which is awesome. Like we're just heads down. We're still building. Hopefully people don't find out about us until he's almost out of high school. <laughs> yeah, I'll get less black for. <laughs> yeah. no, no, it's all good. I, I'm joking. I think it's the same. Like there are definitely instances of child labor, but I think that we wouldn't associate them with more like, I don't know, like manual labor, risk labor, yeah, yeah. you know, more exploitative relationships. I think what you're doing is great. Empowering a kid to learn and build his own company, yeah. and especially within the family. While he may be cheaper than paying a whatever $300,000 a year engineer, yeah, because all you have to do is feed him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah literally, literally. Yeah. yeah that really is beside the point for him it's more about learning and obviously he gets to capture all the value even if it yeah. is through you because it's still within the same family unit so i won't be reporting you to the whatever child protection <laughs> body is. yeah <laughs> no, it's no, it's, i think especially in the u.s we vastly underestimate what kids are able to accomplish and we've built a system here where kids barely do anything by the time they're out of high school, 18 years old. And for the most part, most kids graduate from high school without any marketable skills. They have grades from school, but they're not, they're not marketable skills. And so we've just, just say a hundred years ago, what did an 18 year old kid know how to do a hundred years ago? I would, I would venture to say a lot of them knew a trade at least where they could work in a company and earn a living and probably more. And it probably wasn't at 18. They probably learned the trade by the time they're in the early teens. And anyways, I think we've, yeah, we've, I think we're underselling kids. They, when they're young, they can learn. Like I, when, when I compare myself to, to my kids, they can learn 10 times faster than I can. And that's, I feel like that's a superpower. 
And so these formative years, like, I think it's an excellent time for them to, if you can find something that they, they really love to do, encourage them, let them learn and just set them loose because it's a powerful thing. I 100% agree. I think it's, it comes down to what we were talking before about being very comfortable with the way that things are. And I see it in Australia as well. And I think that's a huge misconception. So for instance, as a migrant to Australia, I've always seen Australia is like 40 years behind the US. Young country, prosperous, growing in population and diversity. And we've had largely a mining boom, although we're starting to grow in other industries. And what I keep telling people, my close friends, I guess this is the first time I'm going to say this publicly, is that it is a wild misconception for young people today to think that if they keep doing the same thing that the parents did, they're going to have the same lifestyle. They're not. Unless we reinvent ourselves and we really step out of our comfort zone and embrace technology and learn how to do things, our lifestyle is going to continue to go down. And I don't think we're doing enough to maintain that status. Like I've heard some horrible (laughs) takes from Australians that I really think that we have to stop and reflect on. Like I've heard people say, oh, I don't need to learn engineering. I can just hire an engineering team from India. No, 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 no. The engineering team from India will be the leading company. Like, why do you think (laughs) that they're going to be listening to a random Australian who doesn't know how to code? Yes, we have the capital now. We have a positioning and and a market now, but that's not going to be the case. And I see the pace at which all these developing economies is growing. We're doing a lot of work with Nirispano. There's a node in Kenya. They've got a bunch of people in Russia and Ukraine, all over Asia. Technology is a level playing field. And all these people are 100% jumping on the opportunity to finally enter a global. They're thirsty, they're driven, they're ambitious. So I think that if it takes reimagining how we teach kids to keep them curious, to keep them ambitious, to play with new technology, you know, I support that 100%. Yeah, you're 100%. It's no longer just competing. 20 years ago, you graduated from high school and you're competing against your peers, your your local peers. In 20 years from now, you're going to be competing against everyone in the world. Everything's changing. And that's why education itself, like, it it needs to evolve and change. It needs to be leading the way. Like, it, things are changing so fast. Our educational systems aren't able to keep up. And so that's why you can pretty much pick any problem in the world and just start try to figure out how to solve it. You're going to be in a pretty good shape because a lot of time, a lot of the problems that need to be solved now are new problems that people don't even know how to solve. And you can't just go to school to learn how to solve them. So, um, well, half the problems we don't even realize are problems. Yeah. No, <laughs> at the moment, we may think it's a solution. This yeah. ties in really nicely with one of those product speak. I think it's Scott Galloway who has become hilarious because every time he makes calls about shares, it goes in the complete opposite direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but other than his ability to make price predictions, he does have some good takes more in the business world. And I think that, or is it him or Ben Thompson? You know, business theory, there's two ways of making money, bundling and unbundling. So I think that if we were to like overlap that the trends that we've discussed, I'd say that the bundling now is we're going global. There's one economy that we're all part of, and it's going to be... Bit of a big ripple effect on the job markets and opportunities, etc. I do think that in due time we're going to start to see some 
unbundling. There will be like local economies that arise. It's all cycles. And I actually had written that down beforehand because I thought that a really good example of that bundling and unbundling experience, if we applied in different contexts, would be, say, Facebook was a bundling. Everyone in the world is on it. Yeah. And then as it becomes too monolithic and too noisy and crazy people shouting at each other, then you start to see the unbundling. So there's a lot of small and even micro community platforms like Join Tracker in Hawaii that are born to address more specific needs. It's important to notice those strengths and position yourself accordingly. Right now, it's about global cooperation and integration. For sure. When the internet took off, you had the bundling, you had these, the basically the, the big giant internet companies and they just swallowed, they swallowed the entire market, Google, Facebook, Amazon. And it was great. They were there first and they got these giant leads and they built what they built and it's been used. And now we're starting to realize that it's not the best way to do things. And time has gone on. And yeah, I think we've entered the, the age where those companies and those services they offer that they are being unbundled pretty rapidly and and now with the crypto world taking off it's gonna it's a lot more than just those big tech companies that are being unbundled i mean we're unbundling the banks the financial institutions we're going to be unbundling education the creator economy everything the near ecosystem i love it that we've gotten near as the l1 and we're already starting to see an unbundling (laughs) Yeah, We've yeah. got Aurora and Octopus on top in each app chain in Octopus and each Ethereum application that expands to Aurora. Like there's so many little ecosystems that I guess there's many ways to slice the pie and you can really make any case that you want. Bundling and unbundling. It's happening simultaneously depending on your lenses or your time frame. As we hit the one hour mark, I guess that we're probably getting towards a point where you've shared the project you're working on now. I don't know if there's anything specific that you'd like to share or explain. And then I'd love to hear from your vision for the future, you know, say over the next few years, what you'd like to achieve from your kids. Yeah. I think I only know Moses and Elijah, uh, 15 yeah. and 14. I don't know if the other ones are younger, you know, how that, for, for the vision for the future, you can include the plans or the challenges with that company as well. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So we're with Tracker, we're, we're building our own publishing platform and our goal in a nutshell is to help individual publishers uh, be self-sustainable. We want to help them monetize their work. And, and specifically, we're basically building a platform that it's below, right now it's being implemented as a local news platform. So we're trying to solve the local news crisis, if you want to, in the sense that I think a lot of people around the world don't know how the local news is going to survive. That's probably our the biggest if you know we I could talk for hours about just the all the different ways we're we're working on that. So yeah, and we we've made a ton of progress. It's been very encouraging. I I think we're I think we're on to something and so just having the platform that we could and ultimately we could potentially scale that out and and have local news sites all across the country and potentially even the world. It starts to get my head starts to I know how much work it is to run two two local news communities. And so, yeah, my head gets a little, wants to pop when I think about expanding more. But ultimately, that's the goal. The goal is to help as many people as possible. And yeah, and to do that, we've, we're doing things differently and trying to solve problems and yeah, in ways that I don't know 
if other people are, yeah. You're correct. We can probably spend like many <laughs> hours and days unpacking this issue because I guess it, my initial line of thinking is what is it about the news that draws you in as a course worth uh, solving? Yeah. And I remember from my childhood driving to my grandmother's house on a Sunday and on the way we'd stop and buy the newspaper, several of them actually, because yeah. she'd read the Sunday newspaper all week, just like go through yeah. them. And it was really, I guess I'd say interesting because obviously at the time I was a kid. So if I compare it, I guess I have like uneven data points, but I do find it interesting that everyone had roughly the same information and there were yeah. newspapers or publications that had good standing and that really dedicated towards reporting because they had a business model that worked. So I can see that a lot has changed recently, but I guess I'll let you unpack that as you perceive the problem. Yeah, I, I grew up reading. I wasn't a very good student, but I, I loved reading and I would read three newspapers a day, starting in junior high, so all the way through junior high and high school. And then afterwards, the internet was cranking. So it was just, I just transitioned to online reading. But so I've been watching the news industry implode for the last 20 years. Like it's just become a dumpster fire. And I say that, yeah, it's a sad thing. In the best thing. way like, possible. <laughs> I say that, yeah, I, I say that kind of gruffly, but it is sad. Like I've seen the, and I think the, the polls are like 20% of the population of people out in the world trust the news, something like that. It's, it's in, the trust in, in institutional news, like the big, uh, mainstream media, it's its never been lower in history, uh, or at least that we know of. Who knows? It probably was hundreds of years ago. But all, all that to say, th that's what I'm trying to solve. I'm like, it, it doesn't have to be that way. And I think the, the internet, you start a local news company right now or a media company and you're competing with you're competing against a company who was a monopoly for 120 years. They didn't have competition. So they've been able to do whatever they want for the last 120 years. And, and so Perverse incentives entered in, the internet came and they they had they took their monopoly and they want to hold on to it and they'll do anything to make that happen. And when I said the monopoly, like they physically had a monopoly in the sense that nobody could afford the $10 million printing press that that was owned by the newspaper, that kind of a thing. And, and when the internet came, it took, it leveled the playing field so that it took, you could be a nobody with an internet connection and... And, and you could even do it from a library. You, you don't even have to have a computer, but you could start competing against big publications. And now YouTube's blown up and Facebook's blown up. And so distribution's been solved. And so now if you can, you have good content and you're trustworthy, or on the flip side, you could actually not be trustworthy and still get a big audience. But what I'm trying to say is like, you could, the, the, the playing field's level. And so there's opportunity to improve things where... Maybe 20 years ago, it's like, how are you going to create a, a better newspaper? You, you have to, you'd have to be born into money or it was just extraordinarily hard. So every once in a while, you'd see some philanthropist start up a, a publication in a big city and, and try to make a go of it and pour millions of dollars into it. But it was pretty rare and it didn't often succeed because it was so difficult. Everything's changed. So all of a sudden now you can compete and you can compete. You can compete on trust, on quality of content, on helpfulness. So, yeah, it's 
Yeah, it's a big problem. I think the thing that drives me is I see how impactful these publications can be on communities or the lack of these publications can be on a community, especially going through disasters. I just happened to live in a community that was going through a a significant 24-hour day disaster for months on end. And in the age of real-time information sharing, like it's helpful to have a trustworthy news source that you can turn to to stay up to date. And not just stay up to date, but also it, it becomes a source of community, like where you connect with your neighbors and your friends and it's a way for people to help each other. So yeah, it's using the internet and everything that's been built on top of it as a tool to help a community. And and yeah, it's a pretty awesome thing. So yeah, the goal is to con- goals continue to do that and support and make it possible for yeah other writers and community builders all across the country to to actually earn a living doing this type of work. Because there's a lot of people doing this work right now, and not very many of them are being compensated if they're outside of the traditional system that's been built. What I like is that you hinted at it, as you mentioned explicitly, <laughs> towards the end. But I think that there's so much to unpack there that I'd like to make it like super clear and obvious when you mention using the tools of the internet to solve the problem, the way that I see it from a product perspective is you actually have two different uh, categories. There is a problem itself. Is there a strong pain point? Who is suffering it? And then you start to think of ways of solving it. But the interesting thing is that the other bucket is equally powerful because the internet gives us completely new tools so that we can rethink the problem. An example in the news space, and I haven't done any research or worked in the field, but I can imagine that managing at scale becomes completely different. Back in the day, physical newspapers would have staff. And if you want to submit something to the newspaper, it's more of an analog process and it has to go through an editing board and there's only so much space on the physical newspaper. So once you start to internalize all the tools that the internet allows, then you've got a completely different landscape. So I I really like when people take fresh approaches to problems that are in many ways informed by what the technology can do. And it's a nice segue to, you know, a lot of the efforts that we're doing with the product and user experience guild, because it's another really good example of you can have, you, you identify a problem and then you have an idea of how to solve it. But at least in my experience, and as we're doing more outreach, it seems to be a common experience once people understand what the near text that can do, their ambition and their scope automatically expands because they may have had an assumption of what blockchain can do by dealing with previous blockchains or because they're not really much into technology. So it is really interesting to reassess what is possible as new things appear and they're appearing on a daily basis. Yeah. And yeah, I think your take is a good one. It's certainly needed. It's certainly one of those things where I don't think anyone would disagree with the problem existing. And most people would agree on the value that solving the problem would create. It's just what's in the middle. How do you solve it? And there's many different approaches to it. I would say it's like just I look at it and I say that I believe that the Internet and and our current suite of tools enables the operation of a publisher to be 10 times more efficient, maybe more. and. So if you, I'd throw it out there that if you don't see newspapers taking advantage of that, their days are numbered. And I know it's kind of a sobering take, but the reality is like, 
they're going to be competing against competent people that are able to operate the same exact business at 10 times more efficiently. So I guess yeah. to your advantage, you mentioned before that you're flying under the radar and there are some benefits to that. I think that you are in a really good space in the sense that it's not all doom and gloom. And what do I mean by that? There are existing businesses that are able to run their business, even if it's mediocre, even if it is dishonest, even if it is what it is, they're still able yeah. to run. And we both know what larger businesses are like with the board of directors and shareholders. As long as they can make money quarter to quarter, they'll be there doing the same. And what I like is it. This is one of those areas where you can grow the pie. You can create a new way of doing things and start carving out your own market. And I can give you a specific example. Like I am convinced that if a publishing executive were to listen to this call, they may be confused. What are these guys talking about? This mm -hmm. is the first generation yeah. in history where writers are making money while they're alive. Yeah, you know, Everyone's yeah. getting book deals. They found new distribution channels through podcasts. Like I, yeah. I listen to a handful of podcasts and even before I listen to any of them, I know who launched a book because the same author is suddenly on all of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah I think, uh, what's his name? Uh, the neurologist, uh, I think it's Huberman went on the same week on Joe Rogan, Lex Friedman and Tim Ferriss. Wow. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, he's got something coming up. There is a book tour. And you know what the crazy thing is? It works. Because yeah. you get to connect to the author in a different way. They basically pitch to you for an hour. And if the topic appeals to you, it's a pretty good sell. If you still want to learn more about the topic or, or dig their brains after the hour, you're probably going to buy the book. So there are many different things that they've tweaked or that makes them feel very modern and that enables them to keep making money, which is good because then they're not focusing on the hard problems. <laughs> Yeah. which means that the people that do focus on the heart problems are going to have a tough time, but are also able to catch that upside if you look at it in the financial sense, but also it's very rewarding to build something and to see it in the community. You've got a great insurance policy because Moses will be a very well-paid developer very soon. So yeah. <laughs> even if everything goes very poorly, you guys will be okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what I tell him. I tell him for some reason we things don't succeed. The skills that that he's learned building a platform, like it's, it's yeah, it's amazing. He's been able, he's gotten experience doing just about everything at every on and at every aspect of it. Hundred percent. There is this kid, and I use the term kid very loosely. He must be what second, third year um, university. I mentored the team through a hackathon that the law school mm -hmm. had recently. So I think it's hilarious. While I was at uni, I felt like a bit of an outcast when it came to technology and innovation. And up until now, really, a lot of lawyers get their identity and their status from mm -hmm. the prestige of attending the school or working at a certain law firm, just being a lawyer in general, even if you're not practicing. So as I was walking away from it, it was like the walk of shame. The tribe pushes you out. And lucky for me, tech was extremely welcoming. Nobody asks and nobody cares what you studied yeah. or your degree. I love that you can have the picture of a dog on your Twitter and a crazy name. <laughs> yeah. It's how you show up. Are you yeah. showing up consistently? Can you add value? Conversations scale very organically. Like we're having this conversation after you know DMing on Twitter and hanging out in Twitter spaces and whatnot. 
I love it that we haven't added each other on LinkedIn. I, I think LinkedIn is so superficial and it's just, it doesn't feel right. It's not organic. And yeah. people still messaging me, mostly marketing people. We've got things in common. Would you like to connect? No, I don't like to connect. I'm on Twitter. We can have a conversation there. If we yeah. click, we click. And if not, there's a billion people out there full of potential. You know, go find someone. So I was selling this kid through the hackathon because eventually it went full circle and they came back to me when they realized that I was one of the few uh, alumni that have you know, made their ways into tech. I mentored them. It was a great experience. They came second. They had an NFT idea on Near. May have had something to do with that. <laughs> awesome. But what I like is that I'm trying to convince him to participate in the upcoming uh, Metaverse hackathon for Near, uh, end of August. It's looking amazing. I um, got the details last night. It's going to be it's supremely exceeded my expectations. They've got like a million dollar in prizes and they're going to have notes by city. Like they're really ramping up. So I'm trying to convince him to participate. And I've got a couple of ideas that I've been workshopping in my head, but I'm not able to execute at a technical level because it's computer science law. And he's look, I'm doing uni three, four days a week. And then I'm working the other three days, I think at a convenience store or something. And I was like, look, Working is important, and I worked all throughout uni. But if you're living at home and you've got some savings and whatnot, I wouldn't worry too much about money now because you are on a really good path to have a really good income on anything you do. You can take a risk with a startup or a venture, which I would encourage you know, if you're young and bright, or you could just take a job. And it's a very well-paid area. So it's, a, it's an interesting conversation to have because it's a generational shift. And he's told me openly, look, the family where I come from, you work, you save to buy a house, <laughs> and then you chill. Like, it, it's different. It's a work in progress, how to expose people to the upside while managing the downside or the perceived downside. Yeah, this is a whole other conversation. I, I, the more a kid can learn when they're young and at home, the less it takes all the pressure in the world off of things when they get older. Like when you're talking about this guy who's been like, he has some of the real world, like I got to pay bills. He's like, he's working at a convenience store. It just becomes exponentially more difficult to take risks and to so do the things you want to do and learn in the areas you want to learn if you wait, if they all wait till later in life. So that's why I'm like, man, kids have it so good when they're young, when they're even at 10 years old, they have nothing. They have their, they have food, they have a house, they have a roof over their head. And then they, all the time in the world. And that's, it's an incredible advantage if they use some of that time to focus on learning skills and, and getting ahead, as long as they're having fun. It's really interesting because you've got like school age kids, which is like yeah. a, definitely a different category because you can craft experiences for them in a much easier way. I think that as people get older, an additional challenge that we have is that the people that tend to be attracted to crypto tend to be a little bit you know, contrarians or crazy or whichever way some people <laughs> may describe us. So it's a challenge of how to tell a contrarian what to do. <laughs> Like I've seen it. You've got a great project yeah. and you present it to someone. And just by virtue of being too pushy or too accommodating, it puts them off. You know, they take a step back and be like, this, this is not okay. I need to find my way into it. There needs to be a calling. 
I think part of that lands on the people that are in the ecosystem, or at least like yourself, for example, it does help to have somebody in your life that, that can, you said you were coming up with those ideas. You know what the, we're not very good at coming up with ideas when we're young because we don't have any life experience. So it's, you might have, we might have skill, kids might have some skills, but they, a lot of times they're not very good at coming up with ideas because they don't, as you get older, you start analyzing life and you, you get better at looking at and identifying problems. And so anyways, all that to say, I think that there is a lot of responsibility on the, the people that have been early into crypto to help cast a vision of, look, you you have an unbelievable opportunity here. Like this, this is like early days of the internet all over again. And there is going to be a group of people that are early adopters that build, yeah, the next generation of applications that people in the world use in every different area. Everything's going to be, and that's a, that's a tremendous opportunity. There's a couple, I think I am going to respectfully disagree. Ooh, I'm going to be the adversarial host. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great. Kids are remarkably good at coming up with ideas. Like their imagination is unbounded, especially the younger they are. Where I think would be really interesting to analyze is what are the ideas that turn into something actionable that may look like a startup or a company? So I think that would be the intersection of the unrestricted ability to come up with ideas, creativity, and being a, a free agent, a free thinker, whatever you may describe it, with life experience. And for yeah. some reason, we seem to have managed the worst possible combination that as life experience increases, we reduce people's creativity. It's like we force people on a pathway. I One thing that I do love about Australians is that they travel a lot. Australia is so far to everything that I think there's like a, a need for people to get out and connect with the world and feel they're part of the world. So most people here have a gap year or even uh, throughout their studies, they have an, an exchange overseas. I think that it really has a lot of perspective. I don't think it is as common in the United States, just because I've seen some people on Twitter advocating to make it a bit more normal. They may even be a bit of a negative stigma if you take like a gap year to travel, how it yeah. may affect your professional life. So I think yeah. those couple of things could help add some life experience while maintaining the creative, keeping options open side. I completely agree. I think... I. On the work side of things, it's this, I think there's a fear of missing out, like somehow falling behind one's peers here. That's, it's really deeply ingrained. And so like taking a year off, oh, that would be the worst. And when reality would be very helpful, like just to have a more worldly perspective and see areas that get outside of (laughs) the little bubble that where, where someone grew up. Just about the ideas thing. I was speaking more of just, what's the term? Ideas that like... I think we get better at identifying problems that are are both solvable and that are worth our time as we get older. So the experience, like you you described the the intersection, part of it, my own experience, like I was, I'm very, I was very entrepreneurial very early and, but without a lot of guidance or encouragement, like definitely not in from the structured school point of view. So I was just like a wild (laughs) I was just a wild little business kid trying to figure out how in the world to do anything. And the hard part about that is I, I would come up with, it was, I could come up with ideas every day and 
so many of them were just terrible. They were cool. Yeah, they were sure little things, but they weren't actually like, yeah. So I just had to learn the hard way, like 20 times in a row kind of a thing. Just, everyone's like, oh, look, he's a great success. And, and they don't talk about the, the 20 failures before that in a row. I 100% agree. I, by the way, I just noticed, is that clock behind you the price of Bitcoin in real time? <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> I was going to, I was going to switch it to, cause you can switch it to, I was actually going to have it on near, but let's, go, let, <laughs> Moses, let's see how Moses. long into the stream do people start commenting on that? <laughs> I've been looking at it and I just realized it looks like it's tracking the price of Bitcoin. And I just checked and I was like, yeah, it's pretty accurate. That's hilarious. No, this is going to go down in history as an outsider. And I think that's why I love traveling because you're always bringing in that fresh perspective and just like absorbing things as you see them without any preconceived ideas. I think that looking at the United States is fascinating because it helps you realize that it is a multi-tiered society like many, and you need to identify where you are or where you want to be. So on the one hand, that extremely competitive approach where it may be seen poorly if you take a gap year or even the amount of holidays you guys get per year. I think it's like tiny compared to other countries, including Australia or, or Europe. Get yeah. That extreme competitiveness does push the edge. Most of the innovation of the last hundred years have come out of the US in every industry. Like you can't deny that there is an American industrious ethos, that it's just different. I don't think there is a right or wrong approach, but the approach that you take is going to yield the result. Now, what I find interesting yeah. is that when you look at the upper end, the top performers, that ethos starts to change. And I think that you will find things like taking a gap year present and you start finding things like yeah, these people don't follow the standard American diet. They call themselves yeah. biohackers because it's so different from the mainstream. So once again, it's about identifying, okay, if I take a gap here, is it going to be seen poorly? Maybe, but by whom? Is it valuable in the industry where I want to be in? Realistically, now in tech, it's amazing because it's one global community. Like when I, I did a fair bit of mm -hmm. traveling in 2017, 2018, mostly Europe, but I did a bit of the US. I went back home. And it was great. Every city that I landed in, I looked up the meetups. I went to a bunch of these tech events. I connected with the co-working spaces. It was possible to work remotely, although at the time I had less formal work. And yeah, it was just really interesting to see how it can advance your you know, journey as you travel. So I think these are the sort of stereotypes or perceptions that are worth talking about and changing. Once again, within Australia, super normal. Like I think... <laughs> The minute the borders open, half the country is going to go overseas. The other area that I found fascinating is your Venn diagram of the problems that are worth solving and worth your time. Because I find that as with everything, you can start to play with the levers and what has happened in technology and once a word. These are just trends that are worth identifying because at the end of the day, you have to make a decision as an individual. Some of the trends that we've seen are there are problems that may not be worth solving, quote unquote. Nobody wants a better you know, Google Ads banner except Google because it makes money. But they try to rebalance the equation by making it worth your time by offering you an insane salary. So it's, a, it's an interesting pathway because you start to see the tug war between becoming an entrepreneur 
and maybe having less financial certainty, but it is worth your time because it's more of a vocation. You're called to solve the problem because it is the time that you were living in. And on the other end, you may not give a crap about the problem <laughs> and you're just yeah. getting yeah. well remunerated for bringing your skills to work. I don't think there's a right or wrong, obviously different levels of inclinations. As we said before, if the vocation fails, Moses is going to get very well paid. So <laughs> it's good to have yeah. both. I think my advice to someone that would be to, if you can pick a problem that even if you fail, you didn't fail, that's ideal. So you're potentially giving yourself a chance for a good success, like financially, if it succeeds and scales and takes off. But if you're solving problems that help people, even if they don't ever pan out as a commercial success, like I think that's a sweet spot that I think a lot of people miss. Because yeah, there's uh, you basically take away the downside. or Because at, at the end of the day, if it doesn't work out, you, just, you were still able to help people and you feel good about what you did and you learned, right? And so then you go on to your next thing or startup or maybe you go to the big a big bigger tech company and coast a little bit, but... A hundred percent. I think that's why there's a couple of things there. The first one is like the, the stoic approach, right? It's identifying what things are within your control and what things are not and not wasting energy and things that you can't control. That's pretty big in the entrepreneurial space because you can put in a hundred percent of the work and build the absolute best thing that you can. A lot of things you just can't control. Yeah. There have been some companies that got completely obliterated. <laughs> because of COVID and a rapid shift in the market. And there are some companies that skyrocketed and may have captured some success because of rapid growth. It also pushed them into directions and, and challenges that they weren't expecting. So we need to know, you know our boundaries of, of influence and action and obviously improve. But the other thing is the learning. I, I, I had a startup that you know we raised funding, we launched, we're doing well, and we had some regulatory challenges, some the bear market and we wound it down. I told everyone that that startup was like my master's, you know, in business or whatever, MBA, whatever it may be, because I learned more during those two years as an operator doing every role than I did in my five, seven previous years at uni and more than I think I would have learned in theory at a university. I, I don't have the one-to-one -one comparison, but it was certainly an excellent experience, which helped me move along my journey. My journey into product is actually interesting because I started going into product proper after being a founder. And I realized, oh, founders are basically product managers that also do everything else. So now I find a lot of these frameworks and processes really useful because a lot of these things I was already doing, but now it's just more streamlined or it is easier to communicate to people. So yeah, it is a learning journey. I think that as long as you're able to jump onto the next step, <laughs> the scars can sometimes be a good thing to have. And one always has to be really careful when saying that because some people are pretty reckless <laughs> and they may be out there searching for scars. It's a fine balance as with everything. But I think that what really helps to make the distinction is the people that you surround yourself with. And I love it that it could be an actual immediate community physical or online. And I think that the new ecosystem is extremely strong and I'm certainly learning a lot from different people every day, but it could also be like a, you know, one to many distant relationship. I listen to, I consume a lot of content and I feel like I've 
created these friendships and absorbed their brains, even though we've never talked. So there's a lot of opportunities out there that I don't think were there 10 years ago. I would have been too young 10 years ago to appreciate them if they were, or they're certainly more prevalent now. I'm jealous of the world that kids get to learn in right now. Yeah, you remember 20 years ago when you were in the tech space, it was lonely, right? It was, you were going to a bookstore to buy books on anything. Like you, if you wanted to learn a programming language, it was, and let alone community, like you had to find, you had to find someone else in your community, which is, and how did you do that? And it was just, everything's different. Now you can listen to podcasts and watch YouTube channels and you can sit on Twitter and you can create your own community. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's just a different world. Like, but, but even the stereotypes, because the stereotype of the weird dude in the basement coding yeah. all day. <laughs> yeah, it blew up. That has, I'm sure that it still happens. That has turned into the most recent meme, which I love it because it captures the, the shift we have a well-known senator in the U.S. saying super, what's it called? Shadow, shadowy super oh, code. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm yeah. sure that in her view, that was a negative thing. It was dismissive. And I love that the industry has taken it as a positive. Shadowy <laughs> is subjective. Super coders, I'm proud of it. And there's yeah. been a movement around it of the community <laughs> owning it. Yeah. And I'm, I just bought actually a, a shadowy super coder jumper from the coin center. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that. I was like, I'm like, they immediately made t-shirts and sweatshirts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it was extremely expensive. I think the AUD exchange rate and shipping, uh, I don't know, I paid some taxes. It was a lot for a jumper, but I just love tapping into that cultural yeah. wave. And I do, once again, we need to make working in tech, something cool, something appealing. Even when I went to uni, studying law had more status and privilege and was more attractive than learning how to code. So I think that's changing really rapidly and uh, it's probably a good thing. Yeah. It's good. There's still room. I actually was over at a junior high today and I was just asking like, how many programmers are coming out or do you guys have a programming class? Because robotics is a big thing. That's a big thing here in the in the U.S. right now, at least in schools and high schools and things. And yeah, we still need. We, there's still a lot of room for growth. So yeah, yeah getting the, just yeah, getting kids programming yeah. earlier and interested in it. The, the kid that I mentioned earlier that I'm tutoring, mentoring, definitely not tutoring. Yeah. He mentioned that there is one unit that really made all the difference um, in the final year of high school because they've got I think core curriculum and some electives. This unit was offered at his high school. But also it is offered to any year 12, final year high school students. They can either come to the school or do it remotely. And it was a unit on algorithms. And he's like, huh. it completely changed my life. That's how, when I decided to go into computer science. And I asked, like, wow, that's amazing. I think the unit has only been running for two years. Hmm. And I asked him, like, how many students statewide? Uh, Victoria, my state, has around 4 million population. I don't know how many are student age, but... There were only 42 students in the entire state taking these units. Wow. And I was like, that is a massive advantage to be able to be exposed to algorithm in high school. It sets you up to deciding what to study and and going to computer science. And he's building real products before he even finishes education. It's those things that inevitably, because things are moving so fast, every generation is going to feel like they missed out. I remember when I was in 2015, 2016, still at uni, some people would say, oh, we missed out on the growth of like whatever because we were too young when Zuckerberg created Facebook and we created this yeah. and created that. 
And that's when you realize you may have missed one trend, but you're never late to whatever is happening now. So it's a matter yeah. of opening your eyes and staying up to date with things, tuning out of crazy, angry Twitter and tapping into <laughs> crypto Twitter and tech Twitter. Yeah, and... yeah I'll, I'll share this with you. When I was at when I was at Facebook headquarters, I was we were loitering around, walking around the campus, and they have this their main Facebook sign out. They purchased the old Sun Microsystems campus down there. They kept the old Sun Microsystems sign. And they wow. literally put a giant Facebook, vi it's like, I, I think it's just like a vinyl banner. And they wrapped it over the sign. And, and when you go behind it, it, you can see it. It says Sun Microsystems. It's like the, the old sign is still there. And they just have this, the new one just tied on with ropes. Now, obviously, they have the money. They could dig the thing up and throw it, throw it away and put in a new fancy several million dollar sign. But they do it. I think it was a reminder of how, how temporary some of these companies are and like, don't lose your edge. Never stop building. It was done on purpose. And it was like, you can look at it two ways. A, it's a great reminder for everyone at Facebook to like, you got to stay on it. And then also for everyone outside of Facebook, anywhere in the world, looking at maybe getting into the technology industry, I was like, everything changes and it changes quick. And you might look at Amazon, oh, they're the they're the king of the world. Nobody's going to take them on. And then Shopify comes and then Shopify is just building things out like crazy. And they're arming the rebels all years. Like who knows what things are going to look like in five years. And then now all of a sudden you have the decentralized internet that's being created and, and crypto. And what's that going to do to commerce? And anyways, everything's going to change. People shouldn't get I think we do that, that, that thinking of, oh, I missed out. I, I better not even try. It's like wrap it up. That's probably no toss that out the window. <laughs> yeah. Great point to wrap it up. That's probably the, the best takeaway. Everything changes. This is the best time to be alive, to learn anything, to restructure your career, to redefine and go in any direction that you want. Um, definitely biased. But I think that crypto is a fantastic place to be. Yeah. The sign behind you is going to timestamp the price of Bitcoin, which is giving me anxiety, yeah. by the way, to see it going up and down. <laughs> I, know. I know. It's, yeah. it's yeah, awesome yeah. when it's going up. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great because that's why it's behind you so you can focus and do some work. And yeah, just really grateful for all your input to the near ecosystem broadly through you and, and your children your community work in general through your projects. Really excited to see how everything pans out. No doubt we'll keep in touch. Maybe we'll have a take two on the podcast. Yeah, that'd be um, awesome. BTC hits 120 or something. <laughs> Are you yeah. going to have enough? I don't think there's going to be enough digits on that clock too. Yeah, so eventually you could. they could take, yeah. It could go out a little bit. It won't be able to go over a million. So I think that's well, where it's it's a fail. good one to have. Hopefully then you'll be able to afford a new clock that it's... Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Ryan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Awesome. Yeah, this is great. Thanks for having me on. No worries. Thanks so much. Send yep. my regards to the kids. Yeah, I will. And we'll, Cheers. we will see you on Twitter. <laughs> you most certainly will.